0: Welcome to Interplay Conversations and in Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro, with my special guest and longtime friend, Natasha Peremsky. Hello, Natasha.
1: Hi, Michael Shapiro.
0: Good to see you. And
1: it's a pleasure to be here. It's well, going to be
0: fun. Yeah. You're in El Paso, Texas, these days, right now, and I'm in Chappaqua, New York. But through the wonders yep. of the internet, we are talking on Interplay. So. Yes. For those who are not familiar with Natasha's playing as a pianist, I consider her one of the most extraordinary musicians I have ever heard, and I've heard a lot of them from Oh, it's true from Horowitz and Rachmaninoff and Richter and Gillel's live, and when I was a kid, to uh, now. And um, I recently, because you know I'm friendly with Andrew Lytton, we did a broadcast recently. I put on your performance of the Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto with the Bergen Philharmonic. Um, Bergen Philharmonic holds a special place for me since I conducted uh, in 2018 at the Bergen Festival, my Frankenstein score. And I spent a good amount of time with uh, the conductor of the Bergen Philharmonic after Andrew Litton at Gardner. But that performance, I will have to say, for those who do not know your pianism, people have to watch the YouTube because it is utterly extraordinary. And we're going to go to the specifics of why. I grew up on the, on the uh, Rachmaninoff recording with Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra, who I also heard live, but much later than the Rachmaninoff recording. And I thought that that was the end of all recordings for that piece. Of course, we're familiar with uh, Harwitz's recording, which is very demonic, and Van Cliburn's early recording. And I worked with Van Earl you know, late in his career. Um, but yours just stands up with all of those, including the old man himself. And wow. let's, well, we can say, wow, but let's examine why. Do you think that there is a characterization that you do with, let's just speak about Rahman of Three, that somehow is organically coming out of the music? What, what are you seeking, Natasha?
1: What am I thinking when I'm playing Rock Three? Yeah,
0: just that piece.
1: <laughs> well, you know, if if I consider the work as a whole, I it, it, believe it or not, I might get in trouble for saying this. It's on a much smaller scale than we think, um, meaning that Rachmaninoff takes these microscopic motifs right? and he expands a 48 minute gargantuan concerto from a very 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 small seed Um, and it's just that's what's so remarkable about it in a sense if you if it's it's much less like we were just talking about Rachmaninoff being a melodist it's perhaps not as overtly melodic as say a rock two which is really just about the melody and, the, and there are so many melodies but here like for example the second move the intermezzo he takes this it's a beautiful melody but it's over quite quickly and then he expands on it becomes a theme of variations and it comes back in just these different forms and different colors and different textures it's really an improvisation this piece I think is above and beyond any of his other piano works um, or anything written for the piano. It really is genuinely an improvisation on, you know, like one or two melodies in the first movie, you know, and things like that. And never mind the third movement, which is, the, you know, the middle section, da, 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 like that over and over again. But you know, and some people actually dislike the concerto but for that reason, you know, the more kind of our more cerebrally driven colleagues um, and they think it's just not as rich and dense. But to me, I think that it's, it's, it's incredible to see how much Rachmaninoff was influenced by New York and how he was influenced by actually American jazz. And yes, of course, there's Russian flavor all over it, But for me, it's kind of creating my my number one goal with that concerto is creating a genuine feeling of making it up as I go along.
0: It felt that way in the Bergen performance, but it was not only spontaneous. It was so incredibly um, passionate and expressive. There wasn't a phrase in that performance. Now, technically... Because I know that some piano students will be watching this. You know the movie Shine with Jeffrey Rush, Rock Three. You know the craziness of Jeffrey Rush in that film, playing the lead character. You play it as if you're playing Three Blind Mice. You know you have <laughs> you have technique to spare up the wazoo. So let's go back, if we may, okay. to Russia when you were a little girl. How did you progress, you think? I mean, obviously, there's a natural talent, a natural musicianship, cultured by a lot of chamber music playing, a lot of symphonic playing with orchestras, a lot of solo work, all the huge repertoire. But technically, coming from the mind, which has this musicality, to the fingers that can, that can play those notes, I cannot play the third piano concerto. I'm a school pianist, okay? I cannot do it. Second, barely, right? Third, no way. Ever, ever, ever. I mean, not happening. So
1: never. never.
0: At my age, (laughs) I write music. I don't play any in public anymore. I conduct a lot, but I don't play anymore. So let's talk about your from early age in Russia, coming at eight years old here, your studies at Manus, etc. How do you think your virtuosity developed do you remember when it suddenly clicked how did it happen that it moved to the tips of your fingers without thinking a second time
1: well um look it started i remember my very first piano lesson in russia and i remember the teacher forcing me to understand the weight of my hand at the age of three and a half years old she was over like they start it's it's from ground zero it's like technique, 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 because look, the, the Russian um, theory of virtuosity is that if you can't play everything, you can't play really anything. So you have to be able to have the complete toolbox. And even Neuhaus writes about how when Gillels came to study with him, he said, you know, this guy, I've never seen anybody play such fast octaves. And I've never seen anybody blaze through so quickly through these most demonic of passages. And he was so obsessed with his technique. He was just like constantly working on his technique. And Neuhaus said, and I encouraged that very much because the the more connected, the the greater your understanding of the instrument, the greater you can express your goal, really, as a pianist, is to become to have the utmost connection to this most autonomous of interest instruments, the the one instrument that could do pretty much any color, um, and it can go from the tiniest pianissimo to the you know most explosive Prokofiev Second Piano Concerto First Movement cadenza um, madness. Um, but it all starts from age three and a half in Russia anyway, where like they teach you the, the freedom and, you know, correct, uh, risk position. And I remember my first lesson, I, I asked my teacher, I said, so when can I do octaves?
0: Well, a three and a half.
1: <laughs> she says, mm. you can't pedals. Let's think about the octaves in a little while. But then I remember lesson number two, I was playing something and she noticed some tension in my hand, she says, and this is how you will only be able to play octaves for a very, very short time. And so, you know, it's tension release. And, um, you know, they kind of tried to impose extra, uh, you know, Cherni and all those etudes on me, but that, that fell on deaf ears real quick because I was like, no, I want to play real music. I didn't get into this for etudes. So um, and then my family immigrated and it, they didn't immigrate for me. They immigrated for my father, who was uh, a computer scientist. And because when the wall fell, the, the Soviet Union having collapsed, they literally they call it katastroika because it just became a, a, a catastrophic country to live in.
0: A katastroika, but and, katastroika, yeah.
1: Katastroika. Yeah.
0: Astroica.
1: And my mom, yeah. my mom did not want to raise her children there. I have a younger brother. And so sh- there were a lot of people poaching people like my father to come to the United States, to Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. pursue, you know, computer science there in the boom of the nineties. And my mom said, yeah, we're going, but they literally had to start from zero they literally, my dad came to this country with all the essentials, which for a Russian person are a pack of cigarettes, uh, a bottle of vodka and a passport. So um, that's how my dad start at the age of 48, not speaking a word of English. Mm. And obviously it was just made very clear to me that the piano is not a priority piano lessons were free in russia and they were expensive here are expensive here and didn't have the money to transport what the piano shaped object that wouldn't have made it across the pond and so no piano no music for about nine ten months maybe a year Mm -hmm. and then and then i just begged my parents to play because I my mom got tickets to see Gany Kissing, and I believe it was at Herbst Theater at San Francisco Performances, it may have even been his debut on that series and his San Francisco debut, right? And I just remember being completely blown away. I mean, I, of course, I knew who he was, and I uh we had a cassette tape of his 12 year old Chopin concertos, which I effectively destroyed by playing them nonstop in my mom's car uh, and uh, to see him in the flesh was just insane and I remember crying and just it was so painful for me I was, I was really missing the instrument and so I begged my parents I said I really want to be like that I want to be a performing artist I want to be on that stage and I want to one day play a solo recital on that same stage um and uh, yeah, let's see. I made my San Francisco debut about seven
0: years later. All right, but let's wait before we get. No, oh, wait. Yeah.
1: But then when I begged them, I begged them. They said, "But we don't have any money." And they and and but I said, "But mom, like I can't live without this. I'm jealous of anybody who's in front of me, like in a movie or like at my dad's company party, playing the party. I'm jealous of all those people." I started playing on my knees. I mean, it was really sad. And my parents just broke themselves. And the first thing they did was they tried to look for a Russian piano teacher.
0: Uh-huh. It
1: was really important to them. It was not like just any teacher who people say like, oh, yeah, this person's... You were in California, were you? Huh?
0: Where in California, were you?
1: Oh, yes. Um, the Silicon Valley. So um, Mountain View. Okay. So
0: Mountain View. They were looking for a Russian piano teacher. And then...
1: And they found, yeah, a short, I, believe it or not, there's quite a plethora. So, um, you know, I had a couple of teachers that kind of honored that technical approach. And then I had a German teacher and he was, he was good because, I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't listen to what he was saying about the technique because I was like, no, I use a different manual. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the but,
0: manual because we haven't gotten to that. Talk. Oh, about- Yeah talk, please be as specific as possible. I have seen, for example, master masterclasses, which are allowed on video, where you can see how he is teaching coming out of his hour training. What did you have to study to get to the point that you can play Rachmaninoff 3 with such authority that it is literally so easy for you? What did you do? Um,
1: well, I would say the moment it clicked is actually when I came to Manus and I studied with Pavlina Dakovska, who is like the, she's a Neuhaus school granddaughter, if that makes sense. Like her teacher studied with Neuhaus. So it's like like a different lineage.
0: Like actors with Stanislavski and their grandchildren. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, um, so she actually let's let's say she revealed what I had kind of found somewhat naturally. Um but she just revealed it and it really all boils down to going to the bottom of the key and releasing. I mean, unfortunately it's that simple. Um and using the whole weight of your body, playing from your back muscles, mm-hmm. um, never playing from your shoulders, never playing from your elbow, mm-hmm. and definitely never playing from your wrist and never isolating fingers like this. This is the worst thing you could possibly do. And I now call it, when I teach, I call it the valves, like all the valves. You said, don't close the valves. The minute You close one valve, that's it. And so you play like this. You close one, two, three, four valves. You're like oh, I'm trying to sing like this.
0: So show with your hand. Can you show with your hand how you put that in per note? How do you
1: so like one of yeah one of the things that Ms. Um, likes to do with students who really need like a lot of um like un, untightening. Yeah. She puts them on a simple C major scale, and you—it's really this, like, kind of like, like all of this is loose. But your, your, your very last joint is extraordinarily engaged, and it's really like thinking about pizzicato. You go to the bottom of the key, and you just—it's like this motion. Mm-hmm. So people think staccato is this, Mm-mm. but actually that's garbage because <laughs> that's not precise at all. Um, but in Russian staccato technique, it's this. It's going to the key and actually feeling the key release you back up. So really, you're only doing a down motion. You never do an up motion. So when people play like this, it's already indicative of tension. Interesting. Yeah. So the moment anybody goes like this off of a chord, I'm like, boy, no rock three for you.
0: <laughs> this is great. Now let's talk about hand position. Mm-hmm. Horowitz was famous for very flat fingers.
1: Well, have you ever played his piano? He could get away with it.
0: And, you know, he could only have one piano. I was with the technician once at Steinway Basement, and he showed me what Robot did. But, you know, Rubinstein, I heard many times, he had a, more of a German kind of playing. Richter and Galel, certainly, with what you're talking about. I mean, oh, mean. Yeah. My God, I remember it. Richter put his whole body into it, as did Galels. They're very physically different. Galels was kind of a bear of a man. And Richter yeah. was not. But they both, you know, this is fascinating. This is the kind of thing I wanted to get out of you today, was discussing this technical approach, which is just part of it, of course. Now, let's, yeah. let's talk about musicality, which to yeah. me is to a magnificent thing. You also, from an early age, have done chamber music, correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Like so t- from ten. A-N. Yeah.
0: yeah. And chamber music, piano quartets, piano quintets, piano trios, accompanying a violinist, accompanying a singer, accompanying a cellist. And your marvelous recording with Bailey, of great cellist, ind- indicative of this kind of connection. Do you think your chamber music playing has um, influenced your concerto playing and back? to chamber music?
1: Oh, sure. Without a doubt. I would say... How? For sure. Well, the the, the way it influenced my concerto playing is, I mean, if you take a piece like Rock 2, for example, or either one of the Brahms concertos, any Beethoven concerto, you're really part of the fabric very much. And you're sometimes literally accompanying. You're Mm -hmm. just sitting there accompanying, like, Think about the development, the exposition. Sorry, the development section of Beethoven Four, and how you're just like you're texturizing, and it's really like the wind show and the string show, and um, you know you you have to have that sensibility and sensitivity. I think when people are not exposed to playing concertos with an orchestra um, from a young age. Um, you know, in tandem with chamber music playing, it's very easy for them to confuse that just because they're soloists that they lead all the time. And you'll find it very funny. And I I, I laugh, I giggle inside now that I, every time I'm, I have a conductor meeting, I actually ask very, very frequently for the conductor to lead because it's just safer it's safer for me to be able to, especially when I'm not a leading texture, to be able to plug myself in and, you know, and gel. Uh-huh. But if a conductor doesn't have a strong vision, and especially in a piece like Brahms one, Brahms two, my the whole thing could fall apart. Because if you're waiting for me and I'm waiting for you, and that's the thing about chamber music as well, you know, at any given moment, somebody is leading the texture. And it's not always just the first violinist.
0: I will tell you, my best experiences with soloists have been when we breathe together and there's the give and take. Um, yeah. No question. But I think both sides have to have the conception, very much so. Uh, uh, and what I've, you know, I've done a lot of concerto co- accompanying over the years. And I do find that, yes, the preparatory work is great. But if the pianist has never done chamber music, they shouldn't be anywhere near concerted ever because they don't understand the whole idea of the back and forth. Now, the
1: idea of the back and forth and also anticipation. Yeah. Like being able, I think I just learned from a really, really super young age to listen to vibrato mm-hmm. and I don't have to look. It has nothing to do with, you know, whether I've known the person for a long time I can hear from the vibrato when that note is going to change.
0: I want to yeah. talk about I want to talk about new music, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned a pianist, and I don't mention, mind mentioning his name, and that's Kissin, who I knew uh, when he was in his twenties or thirties because we did a memorial concert together, and then we met a few times before that with a friend, friend in common. And I talked to him about new music, and he looked at me because he knows I, comp- I was a composer, and he said. Well, no one is composing today as good as uh, uh, Schumann and Chopin, so I'm not really very interested. Boom! Right away. Now, when I heard that, it, it gave me some pause and actually made me rather sad for him because I didn't see a development in his intellectually that was important. And as a musician, I, I was rather shocked with that comment. So where do you want, what is your taste these days in, in new music? Where do you want to go with it? What? What what do you add to your repertoire? What are you looking for?
1: Um, Well, I've been lucky enough to have had pieces written for me. Hmm. And that has been really an extraordinary experience because, um, you know, well, one of the the times the composer was a bit more stringent on, like, no, I wrote it, I want it this way. But I still managed to convince them that, you know, from a pianistic standpoint, you're cramming way too much info into a very narrow Mm -hmm. space on the keyboard. And, you know, so I love the give and take, but then like, for example, Fred Hirsch, what he wrote for me, the Tchaikovsky Variations, that was so much fun for me because he let me fly with that one. He sent me, he, he sent me his, you know, what he wrote, and then I called him and said, Fred, I think I know what you're going for in this one variation, but I think that if it was a little bit more succinct, the opposite problem of the other, um, I think I, I, I know what you want. You want like pizzazz. You want this kind of Chopin winter wind thing here. I can, if you don't mind me rewriting, oh my lie with it he was like
0: well, well, that's that's what he, that's what he should have said
1: yeah and so that for me is so exciting um where you know we're so stifled by the dogma of never mind beethoven you know we're like
0: no, but <laughs> every listen,
1: single listen, dot and
0: the academics going back to rachmaninoff and then i asked Sibelius to that list even Puccini. when i was growing up and going to columbia college and to juilliard and manis there was a crew of people who, who looked at Rachmaninoff and Sibelius and Puccini and they stuck their nose out of it. And I was ready to kill them then. Now kill
1: still those people. I remember Alfred Brendel telling asked me what I'm playing next. And I said, Rachmanov I'm gonna He was like, that is such a garbage piece.
0: And well, I was like that, that you're a great, much greater pianist and musician than he will ever be in my book. So let us now let us now talk about one other thing.
1: One. <laughs> so,
0: you're teaching you are a wonderful teacher but also you are now the new head of the new york Piano society which yes. is a, a major institution in pointing people into the into the future and the, dealing with the present could you talk to us about it and how you how that came to you
1: yeah well it is a community of enthusiast pianists some people call them amateurs i hate that word Mm -hmm. um because we have some people who really run their circles around like the other day or the other uh, our our most recent concert uh one of our members performed the first movement of chopin third sonata like he doesn't have a major trading day job you know um with with super high uh intensity day job Mm -hmm. so it's a it's a community of people who's uh, who do not make money playing music and do something else. They're doctors. We have the leading pulmonologist in New York City. He's the founding member, Len Horowitz, mm-hmm. um, and we have Simon Yates, who's you know head of a Japanese bank. Um, we have people who are also in media. We have a new member who we have a couple of new members, one of whom started her own beauty company and has also been an anchor for Bloomberg and also had uh, a life in trading. And then we have a new member who is uh, he owns several companies and then also a nonprofit that brings together Palestinians and Israelis through symbols. And it's just a really cool, cool group of people who who happen to have studied piano in their youth and actually at a rather high level, Mm -hmm. but elected not to go into music. But how do you just let go of music? You can't just one day switch it off and forget about it. You know, that love is always there. It's biological. Huh?
0: It's biological.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's biological, and um, I think they have the purest kind of. They, I think they, their, their relationship to music may be more pure than most pros out there.
0: Very well said. Because I've met many musicians who don't really like music or listen to it. But I will <laughs> tell the audience now, as we have to uh, leave you right now, Natasha Peremsky, that. Um, You know, run, don't hide if if Natasha's playing locally. And the great news is your recordings are very much available on all the major platforms. And uh, to watch you play, too, is a breathtaking event on YouTube and through your website. So Natasha Koremsky, extraordinary musician, pianist, friend. Thank you for being on Interplay.
1: Thank you for having me, Michael. It's always fun to talk with you.
0: This is Michael Shapiro for Interplay Conversations in Music. Thank you for joining us.